Welcome to Social Impact Now, a podcast for social change makers, with your host, Elaine Rasmussen. The Social Impact Now podcast lifts up the work of social change makers like you who are powering a positive impact and equity in our communities. It's time for you and your host, Elaine Rasmussen, to drive Social Impact Now. On this episode of Social Impact Now, we have Joel Solomon, Chair of Renewal Funds and author of The Clean Money Revolution, Reinventing Power, Purpose, and Capitalism. In his early career, Joel worked as a National Youth Coordinator in Jimmy Carter's 1976 presidential campaign and went on to serve in a number of political advisory positions, including his active engagement with municipal political party Vision Vancouver, led by Mayor Gregor Robertson. Invited by founder and funder Carol Newell, Joel spent 14 years implementing a whole portfolio to mission strategy in Newell's family office. The two partnered to establish what continues to be a unique investment in philanthropic organizational sisterhood, Renewal Partners and Ends Well Foundation, which has a 50-year strategy and a 500-year intention. Renewal Partners seed invested in dozens of values-based companies, including Stonyfield Yogurt and Seventh Generation. As part of an integrated use of capital for social change strategy that helped catalyze Vancouver's leadership in long-term new economy thinking, Joel Solomon currently chairs Renewal Funds, Canada Canada's largest mission venture capital firm with $98 million assets under management, investing in organics and envirotech in Canada and the U.S., and is part of the faculty for the RSF Social Finance Integrated Capital Fellowship. Joel is also the author of The Clean Money Revolution, Reinventing Power, Purpose, and Capitalism, which explores the massive economic shift that's creating new and ethical and sustainable businesses that power local economies, restore ecosystems, and build social and financial equity. Joel, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Elaine. So let's begin sort of at the end and maybe kind of work our way back. You, along with Carol Newell, started Renewal Funds focused on serving as a mission venture capital fund. Tell me more about what a mission venture capital fund is. Yes, along with our key partner, CEO and President Paul Richardson, we launched Renewal Funds during the recession of 07 through 09. We put the word mission with our venture capital because we are a mission first investor. The purpose for building this fund is is, of course, at the core, using the fact that people want to make money with their investments. And uh, we believed that by directing capital into promising entrepreneurs that are doing something that matters in food issues and environmental technology issues is our core areas, we think that business, finance, and money can be a very powerful force for making the world better. It's about the values, the intention that we put into them. And so Mission Venture Capital says, as mission first, we want to know that what the company is doing matters and will advance something that helps the future. So otherwise, after that, it is a more typical venture capital firm. We believe that we're working with the types of entrepreneurs that want to have actual trusting relationships and have partners who care about how things go with the company, what happens for them, how exits happen, how the mission of the company is protected after that period. And so mission venture capital is an indicator that venture capital can be done differently. So I love what you're saying about you decided in the midst of the economic downturn to start a fund. Yes. (laughs) What was that like? Although you had somebody, a wealth holder, did that significantly change starting a fund during an economic downturn versus starting a fund at any other sort of time? Well, there turned out to be benefits that weren't expected. Number one, Carol's a wealth holder, and she was able to do a very significant seeding of the fund. And we did that by rolling in pieces of her investment 
in seventh generation, and another business called Horizon Distributors, which had been the largest worker-owned co-op in Canada that also uh, handled the distribution of organic and natural foods across the country. So we took uh, pieces of those companies based on valuations of recent transactions minus 10%. And that's how we sold to our investors and felt that this was a, a fair situation. So those were valued, and it ended up being about 10% of the ultimate fund with Carol's contribution plus the other key partners like myself and Paul. So that's the first part. It gave confidence to other people and it got us a start. But we still had to raise 32 million other dollars. And the recession turned out to be friendly for us because so many people had had stock market and other instruments just go poof overnight. <laughs> and so they wanted the idea of something more tangible, the idea of something that fit into their legacies that helped them explain to their families what they were doing with their money. And that created something that clearly signaled uh, this is a time where change needs to happen. And though incremental, of course, uh, venture capital is not going to solve solve everything in the world. But to start to have venture capital be kinder, gentler and about things that matter and can advance the world was a premise that was uh, made a lot of sense to people. We talked about how organics and environmental technologies were underinvested and undertended to by capital. And they liked the premise. So one by one, we built up 80 investors, individuals, family offices and several charitable foundations out of their asset bases and a couple of boutique wealth managers that had clients that had been bugging them to get their money out of stuff that felt despicable to them into things that they could believe in. So we worked a couple of years and put $35 million together. So that idea of the mission and capital and the kinder, gentler venture capitalism, I'm reminded of a conversation I had with Diane Eisenberg from Seniarth about there's this whole idea of there are trade-offs when you try to do mission-guided investing. And I love her thesis, which is she's like, look, I don't like this word trade-offs. We have a impact thesis. And even though the only instrument we use is debt, we do a really good job doing our impact thesis and we make money doing it. So I don't feel that there's any trade-off. And, and yes. it sounds like that's what, one, you had an intentionality around from the beginning, but it's clearly paying off. It's been necessary to prove into the marketplace that the idea of investing with values is not necessarily concessionary on your return rate. There are many aspects of moving money into you know, how to make the world better that the full range of financial tools from philanthropy to debt to low return to competitive return. And so our job was to prove that what we had done privately with Carol's money could be done with a portion of one's capital that you can invest in promising entrepreneurs that are doing better things and you can make a competitive uh, return rate. So that seemed like something that effectively it comes from assess what resources and potential that you have. You might say, what privilege and what access do you have and how can that do the most leverage? And because very few people uh, with big money, at least 10 years ago and still today, are devoting that capital to the first premise of we're going to try to do good in the world, there's a need for entrepreneurs of all kinds to create products and tools that prove all the different return rate levels and categories of investing can work. And so it seemed like a, a responsibility in a way that we had the capital and the experience and the kind of mindset that would en enable us to uh, prove this point. So with these mission-directed investments, was the intention going into these that these were going to be longer-term investments or was it the opposite where it was more closely aligned to conventional venture capitalism, which is we're putting in a certain amount of money, waiting for the scale and selling of the company to be able to get that return back? So I know Swift Foundation intentionally go in with like, 
like this may be a 10, 15, 20 year investment. Was that the thesis with this? Well, we looked at all the factors that typical venture capital was based on. The ones that we felt were too harsh for the maintaining of the values, meaning and purpose that we were investing with, we modified the best we could. So first of all, we attempted to be more patient. The three to five year flip model seemed like too unrealistic for us to accomplish all of the goals with the investments. We created a 10-year fund and we have four one-year extensions to it. And what we talked to our investors about is there may be some companies left that are not suited yet to be sold. We will have to address that 14 years from now and talk with our limited partners and come up with a way to create a holding company or distribute shares or some other way than forcing a company to sell when it's not the proper time. Now, as it turns out, we're in an era where entrepreneurs decreasingly are attempting to create companies for a lifetime. Right. That they want to be involved in for a lifetime or they want to pass on to their children. But we've gotten into an entrepreneurial belief system, which is build it, flip it, go on to the next thing. So we fell somewhere in the middle of that. We do have to get the money back to the investors with a return rate. And we also want to be appropriate and humane about working with our partners, the entrepreneurs, to a natural time to exit. And most of them these days, we have that conversation on the front end. We ask what your goals are, your aspirations, how much money is going to be enough? What, you know, what do you, and we say, here's what our situation is. So just know that we're going to have to work together on a theory to get us back out. But we want to do it in a way that is both protecting of the mission of the company, number one, or secondly, uh, protect what your goals are. If you want to get us bought out by another investor, that's fine. In your comments, I picked up on something. It seems that when we use the word entrepreneur, that there's an implication that the company will be sold or is trying to scale versus small business. Here in Minnesota, this is a big question we're trying to unpack. What we're finding is particularly with entrepreneurs of color, they don't necessarily identify with any of these phrases that are typically used to classify this thing called owning a business. So they, yes. they you know, they don't necessarily call them small, small businesses. They don't necessarily call themselves entrepreneurs. But based on your last comment, is there an expectation that if a person is calling themselves an entrepreneur, that to an investor, that there's a natural next step that your business is working to scale and sell? Well, I think we collectively have a really huge job on our hands, which is to unpack and break apart the kind of monolith about how the financial world works and what the definitions are. We are working with companies that intend to grow fairly quickly, and generally there's a plan that they want to get out of it when they've accomplished enough to establish the brand, embed the mission, and they feel that bigger entities will be able to carry that further into society. That would come on the theory that I believe grew out of places like the Social Venture Network and the mm -hmm. early discussions of companies that were attempting to have a mission and purpose, which was some of them decided that getting into bigger systems like Stonyfield Yogurt and Danone, their job was to change those big systems by getting embedded within with different kinds of values, different kinds of relationships with consumers and employees and et cetera. And then others are more on the scale of reinventing and finding new categories to change the, what the definitions are, have been assumed to mean. So this is a, a big disruptive moment where the ideas of long term of a safe, clean, just prosperity and a more distributed power in the world needs to be chipped away at it invention by invention, concept by concept and example by example. So there's a big ecosystem of change that's underway. The thing called entrepreneur and the model of Silicon Valley of rapid growth, unicorn 
spawns massive wealth creation on kinds of inventions that many people don't even understand. That's a huge part driving the economy right now. And it's creating a bit of frenzy. And it kind of messes, in my mind, with human psychology and yes. emotion <laughs> and, you know, kind of normalcy. And back to those issues I mentioned of, of justice and uh, income distribution that's appropriate and damage to the commons and, and all these kinds of issues. So I'm in that world of what I'd call a pragmatic idealist that says those of us with different ideas can get into business finance and do it differently. And we need many creative entrepreneurs and basically inventors to create a landscape and an ecosystem of this so that it gets to be a much more effective, fluid, useful tool. And I'm interested to hear more about what you said there of the entrepreneurs you're working with and how this financial system is going to actually serve the needs of emerging entrepreneurs, people of color, and communities that have had less of this kind of power. And how will these two eventually blend into one big happy hole? Yeah, and I'm not sure that they'll blend into a happy hole. (laughs) (laughs) But I think that's a good thing. So back to my comment about there was a friend of mine who is at University of St. Thomas. She's finishing her PhD and she's interviewed, I think, over 100 women entrepreneurs. And after her research was done, I circled back with her and asked her what term boiled up of how these women identified themselves. Was there like one sort of term that rose to the top? And she's like, I was expecting to find that. And there wasn't one thing. They all call themselves different things or didn't really call themselves this at all. They're just like, oh, this is my thing that I do. I even had this conversation. It's queer ladies that make pies. She goes, I call myself the lead pie maker. But Mm. this is a company she founded. She doesn't call herself a founder. She doesn't call herself a CEO. So there is this real thing that's happening about how people are thinking about themselves to the larger macro ecosystem of business. And then, of course, that misalignment with how the finance sector, which has the money to invest in them, looks at them because they're not even getting on the radar because they don't even classify or seek out those places and spaces where the finance people are expecting them to find them. So I think this moves into this component that we've talked about as part of the RSF Social Finance Integrated Capital Fellowship is this need for this different model that serves this breadth. And then I think about what you're talking about for these companies that you're looking for that are scaling and selling and how that butts up against local economy, right? So where you're working at doesn't necessarily work at the local economics level. And that's really the space that I'm in is really about driving what is the local economics and building those ecosystems that then on a larger scale feed into the larger ecosystem. And so that's what I mean by I'm not sure that there'll be a happy whole. I think there'll just be these concentric circles that maybe kind of big bang theory run into one another and bounce off of one another and and launch off from one another. Well, what I'm talking about, of course, is the larger ecosystem in which there's lots of diversity and complexity, Mm -hmm. not that uh, all finance is done the same. And underneath what we're talking about here is the necessary feminization and inclusivization of the emerging economy. We will not effectively go forward as a happy uh, human species if we do not do that. And so it requires a lot of different dimensions to the economy. And what we took on back to, you know, assessing what access and worlds we could do was to just chip away at one part of it. The ultimate goal is to break open the way that the economy has been done and let many flowers bloom and create lots of different models. So, you know, we'll go out front and we'll tackle this thing called venture capital, of course, as a as a almost homeopathic effort where just by staying true to a certain set of values and going into that lion's den of activity and acting differently helps make room for lots of other things to happen.
happen. And of course, indeed, over this last 10 years, the flowering of, of new models and questioning and experimentation is in an early stage of that hopefully happy ecosystem <laughs> that emerges where there is a lot of diversity and that many more people have access to it and that it starts to take on bigger global type values because with population growth, with climate, with species extinction, with con increasing pushing of, of tax burdens and societal burdens onto those that can least afford it and bringing more and more benefits to those who least need it, we are on some trend lines that are going to lead to a very challenging outcome. And as an elder in my <laughs> 60s, as someone, someone in my 60s that's lived through the 60s and through a period of great change, I, I feel that uh, contributing to just getting the conversations opened up, making room for more creativity and experimentation is what those of us that actually have that access and power need to be doing. This is a great segue as we shift to thinking about the local, we have our national, and then we're thinking about the global. And you're very much part of the environmental and climate change movement. The United States Environmental Protection Agency describes environmental justice as the fair treatment and meaningful involvement of all people, regardless of race, color, national origin, or income, with respect to the development, implementation, and enforcement of environmental laws, regulations, and policy. Environmental justice is very much a necessary piece, but it's often neglected aspect of the climate change movement. I often say that the environmental movement has a PR problem because when people can't get their basic needs met, how can we expect them to really want to think about the longer term strategy of the environment? What opportunities do you see for solutions being accessible, produced or driven by low income and marginalized communities? To the degree that I'm equipped uh, to, <laughs> to answer that fully. It's I, opinions I'll, only. I, that's right. But I will go back to diversity in all kinds of ways is actually flowering. The questioning of, of old hierarchical systems, both those are getting stronger. Make no mistake about that. They are getting stronger, but there are many developments and evolutions that are chipping away at the way it could have been, the way it was in the past. And that has to do with information, knowledge, access to information and knowledge. I think we're getting smarter in terms of what is available to more of us. So that means creativity, human ingenuity, and this thing called entrepreneurship can work at every different level. Now, how I think underneath what we've talked about here is how does capital get become more grassroots? Well, there are lots of ways to create community capital. When you assess any kind of human, uh, let's, you know, city or neighborhood or community, and you actually inventory where the power bases are, where the money moves around. I live uh, and work in and around a neighborhood in Vancouver that is probably the, the most challenged neighborhood in the country. And studies that are done here show that the economic activity going on is billions of dollars. That may be drug trade, that may be nonprofits and housing agencies and services and that kind of thing. But there's there's billions of dollars of economic activity happening in all kinds of regions. In the ones that there that it's not billions of dollars of, act, of financial activity, there's other kinds of resources, natural resources, places that people might want to be. So there's an inventory that can be done of every circumstance. The question becomes who holds the power and how do we create more access to that? Because the creativity can happen. We now can assemble through crowdfunding. If we're skillful at it, we can get money from all over the world into our local community if we've got an idea that's attractive and we know how to offer it compellingly. There, there starts to be a question of who gets access to learn those tools. Right. And across the educational systems of the world, there's a lot of change happening there. I've recently been appointed to the board of the University of British Columbia, which is an honor and a huge task <laughs> that uh, I'm only beginning to realize. But watching you didn't know the, the job was dangerous when you took it. <laughs> I did. I did. But I got I probably 
probably let my ego get a hold of me or something. <laughs> it was too good an opportunity for learning and possible influence. But there's 75,000 people involved in that university, and it's a globally recognized one and a highly rated one. Well, what I'm already learning inside it is their commitment to diversity and inclusion is massive, and it is happening. Mm. It's underway. That The demographic of who has access to those tools is changing. Okay, that's still the elite. I can't speak to every different part of society, but we have online learning. We have so many ways now to get access if we've got the determination and the clarity to go there and to deal with whatever our obstacles are. So you obviously I can rant about this for a long time, but <laughs> no, I'll just that's great, uh, great. I'll take a pause there. So you describe yourself as a pragmatic idealist. I call myself a pragmatic optimist. And so in thinking about where are the opportunities, not only in environmental justice, but all of the things that you just talked about, even looking at the democratization of access to education, democratization of access to finance tools, entrepreneurship tools. One of the things that I'm heavily involved in is blockchain technology and using that as an opportunity to disrupt and be an opportunity to move around the system. However, I feel like we're in this very tender moment because I am afraid that blockchain could be another opportunity to perpetuate the status quo. We're just now moving it to digital. And as much as I can in the, the little universe that I occupy, yes. ensure to the best of my ability that access to this information, access to tools and resources. So I sit on the board of the Association for Black Economic Power, and we're talking about how can we, as we're building a Black-led credit union here in the Twin Cities, what are the components of block technology that we can bake in? So very much like you baked in mission alignment from the beginning of renewal funds, how can we bake in from the very beginning of before the doors even open blockchain technology and that being this great, unique opportunity. But we have to move swiftly, I feel, to make sure that it doesn't get co-opted. Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, I would say all things that are hot and that give people access to create concentrated power will be co-opted. Will they be 100 percent co-opted? Is there room to carve out? Yes, there is. And I could go further into these kind of structural kinds of discussions, but I want to say something that I hope is a deeper view of it. We need a spiritual evolution. Underneath this are a lot of questions about how do we take care of the commons? How do we look after the long-term future? Mm -hmm. How do we accept science and the way the world is and start to look at it as a whole ecosystem? And how are we going to take care of the whole ecosystem? And that will gradually be about survival and keeping stability would be another way to say it. And the spiritual evolution that I'm referring to in a simple form is our money represents us. How we get it, earn it, spend it, invest it, what we do with it. And we're connected to that. So now the money that's in my pocket right now probably came off the backs of human beings mm -hmm. somewhere that I'll never know. And they did damage, probably, destruction or bad practices that I actually have some responsibility for. Mm -hmm. And that responsibility starts with asking questions and knowing where it came from. Secondly, making choices that do less damage and that create more goods. And then to make that and find a career and to find how that uh, what I'm going to do in the world is going to affect that. And if we don't figure that out as a species, that this thing called money, which is just an exchange, a representation of the exchange of goods and services, has gotten into a level of esoteria and the ability for only kind of the smartest people in the world to control the most of it, that will lead to very bad outcomes for everyone. And so climate is a great equalizer that way. I understand why people that are attempting to put a roof over the heads of themselves and their children and feed them are not going to have that much interest in worrying about polar bears. I understand that. And we all, under pressure, will shift our priorities. But if this combined population that will soon be 10 billion people does not 
figure out, how to think about the long term, and to know that very responsibility of being alive is to look after the future. If we don't figure that out, we're facing some very challenging times. Now, the odds are we'll only partially figure it out. And like blockchain and every other system that allows people to play out greed and lust Mm -hmm. and the desire for infinite money and to have control, and we keep making that legal, well, we have a very challenging situation on our hands. You know that. People know that. And it's not easy to know what the solution is. And that's why I bring it back to the spiritual, because there were world religions that told us about what life is, where it comes from, what are higher powers and things like that. And they're getting outdated. What will rally us Mm. around a shared cause and view of life and the universe? Big task. But if we don't talk about that and think about it, we're left with a fairly grim future potential where fewer and fewer people hold all the resources and power. And we have some really good stewards in the Native community and stories that tell us how to do that. We just need to listen. That's right. I would argue that even though that the folks that are not necessarily smartest people who have the control of the money. <laughs> yes, they may, be, they may be smart at something, but right. their, their, their kind of whole human uh, smarts is, might be missing. Exactly. Sue, in our fellowship, the conversation of mission investing, not making a profit and or negative returns has come up a lot. What are your thoughts on this? So I believe that everyone does choices along that spectrum. When I say everyone, even those with the least money are making choices about what kind of food to buy and where to live and what to do about school for the kids. And, and so let's but let's move to the people that are holding the power right now, therefore the money. So the first question is how much is enough? You're an affluent person and you think you want to take care of your family and et cetera. So do you need a million dollars? Do you need $10 million? Do you need a hundred million dollars? Do you need a billion? If you have a billion, do you need 10 billion? So this cycle right now does not have alternatives that are very well accepted that put a limit on how much is enough. I like to say things like, I want to be a billionaire of good deeds. I have no <laughs> interest. Great. I have no interest in owning a billion dollars. I would like to have the pleasure and the satisfaction of directing and supporting things that matter. And I feel like I'd do that with infinite amounts of money if you asked me to do it. And that would be by building a team and getting the money out the door as fast as possible to organizations that are working on the parts of this big challenge we're talking about and strengthen them and and help that grow. But the point is, if there's no enough and infinite money is the goal, and then you have the power to influence a public policy and governmental systems to shift towards what you want and away from towards uh, common goods, then that's the cycle we're in. So if you've got your wealthy person, I have single digit millions of dollars of net worth on paper, real estate, private companies, and earnings that I make. I do many things at different return rate levels. Okay, let's start with people. Give away some money. Mm -hmm. And as you probably know, we know that it is lowest income people that give the biggest percentage away of Mm -hmm. their money. Yes. It may be through churches. It may be community groups. So when you give away a dollar, you're making a minus 100% return rate financially. You had a dollar. Now you have zero dollars. So we're all dealing in the negative 100 zone. And then you want to invest in your retirement fund or you want to get a better income you know, on your, on your salary. You're putting money in the bank. You go for the best return rate you can find. And that's a natural instinct. If you look deeper and say that came on the backs of whom and on the damage to what parts of the planet, then you start to make choices, gradations based on ethical and moral choices. And you might take a little less money because the current products available tend to work that way. They don't offer you maximum financial return and doing social and environmental goods. So within each of the pots of money there are in the world, you're doing different things. So I'm involved in this venture capital business and I've explained some of the reason why. But in my personal life, I'm making choices all up and down that spectrum. And what you and I need to do and are doing with our work is helping bring forth those so-called financial products, but opportunities for people to use their money locally, for example, or to use their money on issues that they care about 
about. And the return rate becomes, back to a spiritual evolution, becomes part meaning and purpose. Why am I here on this planet? What is being a good human being? And then some things are, how do I look after my security? How do I manage my, I'm going to just call it greed, that I need to double my excess wealth that I already have. Mm -hmm. And so that's how I think about this return rate thing. And I think it becomes a bit of a dangerous argument to continually talk about is the return rate financially as the total goal. Because with all the people we have, all the different net worths and pots of money, people can choose to focus on different return rates financially because the other kinds of return rates are so important to them. And it may be just for their own spirit and their own soul and their own sense of purpose when they eventually leave this earth. I agree with you that it all comes back to this spirituality and consciousness. Recently had a conversation with an impact investing director, and she said to me, she represents a big foundation that's got a huge endowment. And I asked, are you all having a conversation about spend down? She's like, well, you know, that's not really a conversation that anybody's willing to entertain. So I stay away from that. But what I have been trying to move in the conversation is that we make less. And she's like, because, you know, there's always going to be societal problems to which I responded. Well, what would it be if every philanthropic organization said they were going to spend down? Could we wipe out the societal problem? And she just looked at me like, oh, because that's really the goal. The goal isn't to spend down the money, though. The goal would be like, could we actually obliterate and do what we say that we want to do, which is whatever that thing is. So I find these conversations to be really, really interesting. But I want to move on to you recently authored a book called The Clean Money Revolution, Reinventing Power, Purpose and Capitalism. What do you mean by the term clean money? Fascinatingly, there are still things to say and ways to put words together that have not been used very much. And what finally came to me was about the term clean money is money is thought of not as very clean. Typically, <laughs> there's there's dirty money, which has mm -hmm. to do with uh, money behind the scenes in politics, influencing mm -hmm. public policy and things like that. And then there's there's laundered money and there's criminal money and there's all kinds of money. But the concept of clean money, surprisingly, had not really been used or I couldn't find it anywhere. And so it's meant to be evocative. It is meant by the very term to cause one to ask that question and think about it. I hope everyone comes up with their own answer of what clean money is. But for what it meant for me is everything that we've been talking about, I must be conscious. I must take responsibility as a human being and especially one that is affluent and has privilege. I have an obligation to be sure that money is part of the common good and is directed in ways that help more people besides myself. Take care of myself and family first. Fair enough. Figure out how much is enough. Okay. But there is a moment where having that kind of power is a spiritual consciousness, a practical, a political obligation to think about this differently. And clean is one way to put a screen on looking at how every dollar that we use, everybody we do business with, that we're always looking. I'd say, how do you date? Mm. Well, there's certain things you're looking for. Using your money, you should take it as seriously as that because you are and I am responsible for the things that I invest in and where I do business. That ethic, I hope, and the concept of how do I put those two words together. You could call it better money. You can call it kinder money. <laughs> there's all kinds of ways you can play with it. But clean money turns out to be very evocative just in itself. And I hope that the outcome of it is it will cause people to think more and make better, wiser choices. I 100% agree. I often say this when I'm asked to speak, no matter where you are, whether you have a penny in your pocket or the 100 million in your pocket, every investment is an impact investment. Every time you decide to spend your dollar at Walmart versus Target versus the local store, you're making an investment that perpetuates a system. You have to decide how you feel about those systems, but you have the authority to decide. Some places and spaces, you have less authority over that.
that or less agency by the nature of your access to things, but you can still be thoughtful and at the very least, as you suggested, ask the question. You may not have the opportunity to go to a grocery store that has organic food, but you can decide maybe for these items, I'm going to take the bus to go a little bit further to be able to get access to these things or at least be thinking about them. So as your situation changes, that you can think about where do I want to put my money in whose hands. In LA, this came to a big head back in the 90s with the LA riot. I'm from Los Angeles and there's a part of Los Angeles that was in the black community where many of the stores that were in that area were owned by Koreans versus black people. And there's a lot of geopolitical reasons for that, which I won't get into, but the nature of the uprising was a result of we don't have choices to patron our own people. We don't have choices to be able to, we don't have any agency of being able to move that needle forward. And that's not to say that that's Koreans' fault. I don't want to leave that impression. But when we talk about access and agency, there are external forces. So we have to take that into account. But in as much as we can exercise whatever privilege we have in whatever spaces that we have, if we do have the privilege to have that, that we at least ask the question and make those considerations about where am I spending my money? This dollar that's in my pocket, when I go and swipe my card, which I think has created a detachment to money, we just swipe or we Apple Pay or we Samsung Pay. We don't even see the money anymore. Like who cares? cash anymore. We've gotten disconnected from money and all the choices and decisions that we are giving away by not asking the question. So last question, about a month ago, BlackRock CEO Larry Fink announced that the world's largest wealth management firm will only invest in companies that contribute to society. This push to reinvent capitalism is not limited to BlackRock, as we've talked about in the work that you're doing, but it's starting to get some traction. It's a global movement of incubators, accelerators, investments, funds, professional advisors, universities, and certainly the work that I'm doing and the work of all of our fellows in the fellowship are doing. They're waking to the crisis and eager to help to move business faster. We know that entrepreneurship is the key to thriving communities. As one of the faculty for the RSF Social Finance Integrated Capital Fellowship, how do you describe and think about integrated capital and how does it align with clean money? We are now past the uh, germination stage. My personal experience is 30 years on these ideas, just driven by personal health crisis and deciding I had to figure out my meaning and purpose. And I was the product of some affluence. And how was I going to use that to actually contribute to a better world if I don't have much time to live? By the way, my friend gave me her kidney 10 years ago and all of that uh, has gone well. But the earliest stages of questioning, does money actually have ethical and moral values to it? And early pioneers in that and watching that field grow. We're now past the invention stage and we're in the early stage. And in this early stage, big financial institutions like BlackRock and Fidelity and Vanguard and and these folks that are controlling many, many trillions of dollars are getting pressure from you and me and the people we know and lots of other people asking these questions. I do not want my money doing damage and destruction around the world so that I can get an extra couple of interest rate points. I need to have products that I can believe in and that align with my values. And so what we're seeing is probably a 50-year unfolding of change in how the economy is thought of and how it works. And it does need to be reinvented from top to bottom. And reinventing it for cleaner, greener, and more fair is a huge money-making opportunity. This is not about putting on uh, ashes and and sackcloth. (laughs) That does not have to be that way. There is a more fair and intelligent way for this economy to work. It needs government. It needs policies and, and regulations. It needs mindset from all of us consumers. But Larry Fink, who 
who took an opposite position, a more Milton Friedman position, for many years that the only purpose of finance is to make more money, has felt the pressure and is seeing the trend lines. So it's not fast enough. It's mm-hmm. deeply disappointing. I wish we could accelerate it. I do everything I can think of to help that. <laughs> Maybe we're at the halfway point and we are going to see tremendous innovation and new forms happen. Blockchain has possibilities. Crowdfunding has possibilities. Information sharing, easier flow of capital, distributed education. There are a lot of trends that are positive and might lead us to more of this. But that's how I see the perspective of these big players who are under pressure from their customers. Exxon is forced to reveal its information about climate. These are unheard of just a few years ago. So these are early positive signals. If only they could move faster, if only there could be that kind of magical moment where just mindset flips because a certain critical mass has happened. But all the efforts that you're doing, that localists are doing, that mission venture capitalists are doing, philanthropists are doing, all of it is in a very intertidal zone creativity moment that I do have optimism that this is going to change and shift the direction of massive amounts of capital over the next couple of decades. So we'll see. Well, as Confucius says, may you live in interesting times. And I think we are. (laughs) We are. And well, I look forward to seeing you again at the RSF Integrated Capitals. And I'll say integrated capital is a term that is about using every different part of your money in multiple different ways that can move towards the world that you want to see. Wonderful. Thank you to our guests today, Joel Solomon, Chair of Renewal Funds and author of The Clean Money Revolution, Reinventing Power, Purpose and Capitalism. Thank you for spending your time with me. You have been listening to Social Impact Now with Elaine Rasmussen. Thanks again, Joel. Such a pleasure. Thank you, Elaine. You can check out previous episodes of Social Impact Now at www.socialimpactnow.com. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at SISG. If you're listening on iTunes, give us a five-star rating. 